0: Welcome to Altered States of Context, a podcast about psychedelics, science, and psychotherapy. On this show, we'll talk about the uneasy fit between a medicalized view of individual mental illness and a psychedelic view of suffering and change, and we'll explore many of the possibilities, opportunities, and pitfalls that emerge from this union. In addition, we'll keep it weird and talk about some of the aspects of psychedelic experiencing that make it so interesting, fun, and transformative. Welcome to Episode 3 of Altered States of Context. Today will be the first part of a two-part series in which Brian and I will discuss acceptance and commitment therapy. We'll talk about ACT as a process-based approach, and we'll explain what that means. And we'll talk about the six core processes in ACT and how those interface so nicely with psychedelic experiencing and can help us sort of leverage the psychedelic experience maximally in order to help people make changes in their lives. So without any further ado, here is the first part of our ACT series. So welcome back, everyone. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about a specific form of contextual behavioral therapy. We're going to talk about acceptance and commitment therapy. Last week, we talked about some of the foundations of that particular modality. Um, We talked about a functional contextual approach, and we talked about how ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy is a process-oriented psychotherapy, as in we are seeking to help people modify certain processes that can help them become more psychologically flexible. We think that this approach is a really, really good fit with uh, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, and today we're going to use our podcast time to talk about that fit uh, and how the processes that we seek to modify and act are very consistent with processes that seem to be modified in psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. So to make sure that everybody understands the terms we're using, uh, we're going to define acceptance commitment therapy a little more specifically.
1: So Brian, do you want to do that? Yeah. So ACT is a therapy model that combines acceptance and mindfulness strategies with uh, behavior change and commitment to values-based activities or endeavors. And it's an evidence-based approach uh, that has been shown to be effective for a wide variety of mental health problems And so one of the neat things about ACT is that it's what's called transdiagnostic, meaning that you don't have to learn a different therapy for every different presenting problem. ACT has a a way of approaching uh, human suffering or mental health problems that, as Nate mentioned, looks at some basic underlying processes that uh, are a little bit out of balance. And so ACT is also what is being called more of a process-based approach. So it's kind of a set of principles that drives your work in the therapy room. Within ACT, you can do a lot of specific things that can be taken from other therapy approaches uh, and do them in an ACT consistent way. So ACT is not like a treatment package in the sort of stereotypical sense where it's like session one, you do this, and session two, you do that. Uh, Really, its main goal is to promote what we call psychological flexibility, which means in any given moment, am I really aware of what's happening? And am I doing what is important to me in that moment? Am I living my life according to my values? That sounds like a kind of simple thing to, to 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 do, but actually it's really hard to, you know, consistently live out our values every moment. And so ACT is a.
0: Yeah, sorry, I, I just wanted to tie in because I think it's a good uh, tie in is to remind people of the uh, metaphor of the map last week. You know, we talked about a map being the mental creation that we make that helps us navigate reality it helps us navigate our lives in our world we create this map in our mind and what happens is we, we as humans tend to live from that map you know and we tend to live from that map so rigidly that if we're looking at a map and we don't see a way out of the situation we're in we get completely stuck in that situation we can't see there's no way out so We need to contact, we need to put the map down and contact uh, the underlying life that we're living, the experience of the life that we're living, so that we can look more closely in more detail and find that the terrain may offer us avenues forward that the map doesn't. So by maintaining contact or, you know, making contact with the present moment and being able to sort of separate from our conceptual map which is a map of ourselves, our own limitations in the world, and being able to to kind of create some distance from that and get in touch with the experience of the territory. That's what we we create psychological flexibility there, which is really what we're going for. So we are adaptable, which, you know, in many ways is the uh, signature important aspect of life is the ability to adapt. So sorry to interrupt there, but I just wanted to make a tie-in to the show last week.
1: Yeah, and, and that from an act perspective a lot of suffering or most of suffering that we experience comes from our Attempt to control or manage what really is not controllable. In other words, uh, so much of our energy is spent trying to control how we feel. I don't want to feel anxious. I don't want to feel tired. I don't want shame to show up. So I construct my life in such a way so I don't have these unpleasant experiences, which can work to some degree. um, But often when I'm constructing my life in that way, it's not a vital meaningful life. So for example, if I feel anxious when I interact with people, I could cut people out. I can reduce the amount of time I spent with other people, which might work to reduce some of my anxiety. But uh, often then I'm making a sacrifice, which is connection, support, love, things that really sustain us. So when we practice ACT or when we use ACT, we are
0: Use it, we are trying to help people maintain contact with, with uh, their values, as you're talking about, and help, helping people main, maintain contact with the actual contours of their experience uh, rather than their map of the experience. And there are six core processes that we identify as places that people can easily get stuck and that can be modified You know, through learning. People can learn uh, to behave differently uh, in these six dimensions in order to become more flexible. And so that's really the heart of practicing ACT is learning to identify uh, rigidity in each of those dimensions and help loosen them up. We believe, and, and that there's increasing evidence for, um, people are starting to look at it more closely that the psychedelic experience is a very effective way of, of essentially loosening up these six processes. And we'll talk a little bit about that now. The six processes, we'll just list them, and then we'll go one by one. You know, we have contact with the present moment. We have fusion versus diffusion, cognitive fusion versus diffusion, you know, acceptance versus non-acceptance or willingness uh, and non-acceptance. Self as context versus self as content. That one will require quite a bit of explaining. And then values is another dimension. So contact with values versus being out of contact with personal values and committed action. You know, those are the six main dimensions. And so we can start with probably just, um, often they're presented, if you can imagine a hexagon. They're in each uh, of the six corners of the hexagon is re- represented by one of these core processes so when you see the act hexagon that's sort of how the model is presented visually and usually at the top of the hexagon although i don't think it is a, seen as as being primary it's just sort of happens to be at the top is contact with the present moment and
1: do you want to get started with that one brian sure so contact with the present moment is kind of an ad version of mindfulness it's one way to think of it and this process really refers to this idea that when we're not in contact with the present moment, we we tend to suffer more. Uh, there's been some great experimental studies using smartphones that have shown that uh, when you randomly ping people and ask them how they're feeling, they're more likely to report a positive emotion in the present moment uh, versus uh, when they're not in the present moment, they're more likely to report some negative emotion. So there's this idea that when we're not present, we tend to be as we're sort of uh, defining in an ongoing way, stuck in our maps, stuck in our mental maps, thinking about the future in ways that aren't helpful, worrying about what's going to happen next Uh, perhaps ruminating on the past and we're not in contact with our lives. We're not living. I think most people can relate to this idea that, you know, when you actually look at your day, how much time are you spending fully present with what you're doing? You know, when you're eating, are you eating? When you're taking a shower, are you, are you there with the senses? Or is, are you with your mind in some other place? And so part of being psychologically flexible is really being present to what's happening right here and right now and paying attention to uh, the kinds of things that are going on in my environment and in my interactions. And, you know, we all know that when we're not fully present, when we're kind of half checked out or someplace else, you know, our, our conversations aren't as deep or our experiences aren't as rich. And you can really see this,
0: you know, I have an opportunity, you know, so often to such a wonderful opportunity and a real blessing in in my work to be able to see this play out really clearly. Um, And you see this super clearly in the therapy office. You
1: know, I I, I can
0: think of, you know, working with a person, you know, and, and, and just, they can get themselves really worked up, upset to, um, I can't do this. And, and when they when you when they can come into contact with the present moment, when they can kind of settle into right, you can see the whole, their whole body calm, you know, and it like and it doesn't it's not the pain goes away, but there's this calmness that comes in and then you can actually physically see. When someone, when someone becomes not present, like you can just see it happen. Like the body gets tense, their eyes look up maybe perhaps, but like, there's like, there's a look on their face and it's just a really visible thing you can see when someone sort of like loses contact with the present moment. You know, in want to actually try to help people learn to notice when they've lost contact with the present moment and to come back into contact with the present moment. That's not always easy to do because often the pleasant moment, the present moment is very unpleasant. And so we're trying to escape it in some way. Like, I do not like what's happening here and I want to escape it. The problem is, is that that tends to make the problem worse immediately and over time. To tie this into, you know, the main subject of the podcast, which is to to, to um, introduce psychedelics into these processes. Uh, I think that's one of the signature aspects of the psychedelic experience is the way that time sort of Begins to lose its meaning. And what I mean by that is. These moments seem to open up into. You know, I think in the for many people in the peak of the experience, they they open up into almost an eternity. So when you slow down and you find yourself so immersed in the present moment that almost nothing else exists, you know, and it's a completely immersive experience and brings you into far, far, far beyond your mental map into a sense of timelessness, into a sense of wonder, into a sense of your actual senses of seeing in great detail of hearing in great detail. And all of those things happen because you are sort of experiencing all of the data in the world around you without being mediated by this map making part of our brain. It sort of categorizes and conceptualizes and, and that's gone. And so it's nothing but direct contact with what's around us.
1: One of the features of our brain that's that's both helpful and not helpful is habituation, meaning we get used to things. So when you brush your teeth every day, you don't really pay attention to it because you don't need to, and that saves you mental energy and focus. But the problem with that is we then start to not pay attention to things that are familiar to us. We we take things for granted, you know. I I've, I I've, I've, you know I know what this tastes like. I've had one bite, and then I my mind moves on to the next thing. Or I, I know this person, like this person I've, I live with, and I see them every day. I don't really need to pay attention to them. And so with psychedelics, you'll hear people saying things like, "Wow, like I didn't notice this tree in my backyard." that's been there and how beautiful it is. I've seen it every day uh, that I've lived here, but I've never really looked at it. Um, Or you'll hear people say, I was in my body for the first time in years. I kind of forgot I had this whole physical body with all of these experiences going on. And I was just really present with it in a way that I, I haven't been in a long time. Yeah, and when that process, as it can be, is disrupted within a
0: trip, you know, and I think that's, you know, when, and you see people like will spin out and, you know, especially I'm imagining it like a public event or a music festival or concert or something like that. And and there'll be somebody that will, something in the world that'll pull someone basically out of that contact and, and it can really spin into some dark places, you know. And one of the uh, common harm reduction technique is to sit down with somebody who's doing that, like, and hand them something sensually um, engaging such as like an orange right and just like peel the orange and often it's the case that you know a sensory experience like that will become so immersive and contact will become so rich with whatever that object is you know that 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 again that sort of like non-presence that that worry that fear that that distraction kind of fades away to, leaving this deep contact with you know the the, the, the little oil of the, of, of the peel that squirts out and creates the scent and the taste of the orange and the juice. And it just all becomes so immersive that you're completely in contact with that experience
1: once again, and subsequently calm down. Yeah. And so uh, present moment awareness or contact with the present moment is um, often grouped together with another act process, uh, which we call self as context. This is a very, probably the most uh, difficult to understand for people who are learning act. And I would say one of the reasons for that is we don't typically have words in our culture or our just common everyday um, language to refer to the things that uh, we're trying to talk about when we talk about self as context, because we're we're in some ways talking about, you know, the nature of consciousness or experience of ourselves. And so, Nate, would you like to... Uh, introduce what we mean by self-as-context.
0: Sure. So self-as-context is sort of like a way in which we identify. So when we typically, I think most of us, most of the time tend to identify as sort of self-as-content, right? Like I am sort of like uh, the ongoing, basically thoughts and ideas of myself that go through my head. Like, you know, there's a sort of a... A definition that we have of ourselves—a self-definition. Definition: definition. This is who I am. This is the type of person I am. This is the kind of role. These are the roles that I play in my life. You know, uh, things like that. It's it's kind of a self-definition. Now, those aren't inherently, you know, harmful. And like like many uh, of our mental processes, they help us. Organize ourselves in the world. So, when we talk about these, I think it's important to say that, like, none of these processes are inherently pathological. Uh, they can just become rigid. And, when, and the problem is when we have rigidity, you know, when we become stuck in sort of self as content, uh, we view ourselves at that point exclusively in this way. And these stories that we tell about ourselves can be incredibly self limiting. And again, they are part of that map. The map of the world you know, includes a map of ourselves. This is who I am. This is what I'm capable of. This is what I'm not capable of. This is what my experience is. This is what my experience is going to be because of, of who I am and how I see the world. And so when that sort of self as content, that sort of self-belief becomes sort of rigid and constricted, we have a lot of problems, right? It, it, it prevents us from uh, engaging in certain behaviors. Oh, I'm not the kind of person that does that. So, so we might not do something that we uh, could really benefit from, or, I'm, or you know, or I'm, I'm afraid to do that, or, I'm, you know, I'm not capable of this, or if this happens, I know I'm going to react in this certain way. And so it restricts our behavior, you know, and in order to become psychologically flexible and adaptable, we have to have a really wide ability to respond to lots of different things, you know, but if we believe that we can't, we believe that we're not the kind of person who can you behave in a certain way, you know, that cuts us off from this broad response, responsibility, ability to respond. So with self and context, you know, self as context, uh, we are seeking to be able to view ourselves not simply as a collection of stories and ideas we have our, have about ourselves. But we can integrate part of our processes, our self as process, like the way that we feel through a certain event, the way that we experience the world on a moment to moment basis. That's sort of a self as process. And as a self as context, uh, we view ourselves essentially as the space in which our experience unfolds. So when we have a thought, we are not the thought. The thought is not the thing that we identify with, it is we are the thinker. We are the the space in which that thought weaves its way through um, whatever nervous system connection it has and it comes into our awareness. Uh, we're the space in which that happens. We're the space in which emotion happens. We're the space in which our life unfolds. This aspect, this process, self uh, self as context, I think is basically central to the therapeutic ability of the psychedelic experience because this ability to not view ourselves as as limited by our own self-story right and to see ourselves as part of a larger whole because that's another part we see that i am a space in which this experience unfolds you are a space in which your experience unfolds and there's experience that flows between us and there's deep connection you know there's not a rigid boundary Around ourselves. This is me. You are you. And so we have this interconnection that can sort of flow when we view ourselves differently, when we see ourselves not simply as an experience as as a separate being, but as a space for experience to unfold. Um, and it, I think this really is tied to a lot of the mystical aspects of the psychedelic experience, which I'm sure we'll talk about in more detail in a subsequent podcast, because it's sort of equivalent to, I think, what is often referred to as ego death in other ways of looking at psychedelic experiences. Um, people talk about the experience of ego death quite commonly, uh, in which this, again, ego, this clearly defined version of oneself uh, fades away and is left with experience so that that's my crack at it brian do you have
1: anything else to add to self as context if you have any cannabis you should probably start smoking it right now or maybe five minutes ago <laughs> so I mean that that's a beautiful description of it um, and I say that sort of half jokingly because these are these are just words right and there's so many clients will hear us trying to talk about this idea and unless you've actually experienced what Nate's talking about um and that doesn't have to be through psychedelics. that could just be mindfulness or that, that some people kind of have this sense already that they that you're not your mind, that every thought that comes up that's you have thoughts you you are not your thoughts. you're much bigger than your thoughts. And so this is a hard concept for some folks to to wrap their their heads around. and you know examples of where this might come up clinically is. Clients, when they say things like, I am depressed or I am anxious, right? Mean, sort of defining themselves by their, their depression versus I have depression. You know, depression is a part of me, but it doesn't define me. It's not all of me. There's many other parts of me. Um, and so that's an example of a shift in perspective taking or the ability to kind of step back from a particular story or a particular way of thinking about ourselves. That's not helpful. And so when we talk about self as context, another way to talk about this process is perspective taking. Yes. And I I love that point. I think it ties to what
0: you said at the beginning too, about ACT being a trans diagnostic model. Like we don't need to necessarily define, you know, exactly what your DSM diagnosis is. We do that most of the time because, you know, it's pretty easy. It fits, you know, you match symptoms up, but when you have and I see this a lot people who have been diagnosed for a very long time, like I'm depressed, I'm a depressed person, you know, and it becomes an identity versus I'm a person experiencing depression or some other way of viewing it as an experience that I'm having now, not as a core feature of who I am, because that is, um, can be really difficult to overcome. Like, this is me. I have built my identity around this, you know, therefore, if I, Changing this means changing a core aspect of who I am, and i can't possibly do that because this is me um, and so transcending that and being able to see ourselves as as, as more than that is crucial you know and it's also takes a really long time right in the context of therapy I find that you know this you know modifying this process to take it takes a long time and and it you know it's experiential so we have a lot of ways in which we work with people to try to help them see from different angles take different perspectives um, see things from a variety of angles because when you do that the more angles you look at a situation from the more you slightly ever so slightly separate from your own well this is the way it's I see it right like when we see it from our perspective, this is the way it is when we see it from another perspective that lets a little crack in okay there are more than one way to see this and yet another perspective wow there's three ways to see this and it takes a long time to sort of build that more flexible sense of self Um, and it can be done really 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 rapidly with psychedelic medicine you can go from oh here this is this perspective to oh wow i can see that there are a million perspectives (laughs) there's like an infinite Rolodex of perspectives that I can jump into at any one time and look at this from. Um, And so you have this really powerful experience of just seeing the infinite array of perspectives that are available at any point in time.
1: And another form of suffering that comes from over identifying with myself or my ideas of myself is when I really live my life as if I was somehow separate from other people, from my environment, uh, again, from the context in which I live. And one of the things psychedelics um, often show people is that they're not separate, that we are embedded in a larger, many, many larger contexts, whether that be a social context of our family or our community, uh, whether that be an environmental context, of the places that we live, the, the land, the air, the food that we eat, the water that we drink. When we uh, detach ourselves and cut ourselves off and, and and kind of live separate, as if we're separate from all of these contexts, there's suffering that occurs from that. And this is something that wisdom traditions have been telling us since, uh, you know, for thousands of years. Um, this is not a new idea. The idea, the the experience of being connected to to these contexts, is is not so easy to have necessarily, and so psychedelics are one way to really just fully experience this this embeddedness that that we're talking about, this connectedness with um, the context that really sustains us.
0: Yes, right. The, the and and the and the lack of actual true separation between self and other between ourselves and our environment. So again, that one is, that was pretty deep. <laughs> uh, you know, Selfish context, you can take a long time to, to, to get our minds around that one. And I, I think that it's personally, and I guess this is sort of my opinion based on experience. I don't know that it's necessarily uh, evidence-based, but I believe that that's extremely central to the transformative aspect of of the psychedelic experience. You know, I think that this one is, is just really, really important and moving around the hexaflex. um, And, you know, and you can see, and and I think with this next one, you can really see how interconnected all of these are. It's not like, um, you know, so like when you with the present moment you're also going to be practicing with what uh with acceptance um which is another of the core processes you know acceptance versus non-acceptance because acceptance means you know if you can make contact with the present moment in order to do that you know it's sort of required that you're that you sort of okay i'm willing to have contact with the present moment i can accept that that this experience is happening and that i am that i can be present with it so it's sort of required, um, because non-acceptance, nope, nope, I don't want this. I don't want to feel this. I don't want to have this. I am unwilling sort of then puts you in a stance where you bounce from that experience, right? It's like, nope, not here, not today. I'm gonna, you know, eat a cookie (laughs) or, you know, whatever, um, your preferred technique of avoidance might be. And, you know, avoidance being sort of, the process we tend to engage in when we are not accepting of what is right now. So this process is, is essentially that it's essentially seeing and experiencing, being willing to touch and feel and taste the contours of our
1: life as they exist right here. And now. Yeah. Acceptance is a tricky word. I think a lot of people hear that and they think, It means that I have to like it or I have to approve of it. And that's not what it means. And actually, from from a technical standpoint, when we talk about acceptance and act, we're really talking about acceptance of private events, not situations in our life. We often confuse those two things. They're often very highly correlated. You know, what's happening around me makes me feel a certain way. But it's really about acceptance of reality of what's happening, as Nate said, right here, right now, some feeling, some sensation that I don't like, and then the things I do to try to move away from it. And so sometimes I'll say to clients, would you be interested in like having a superpower where no matter what you felt, no matter what you thought, no matter what memory or dream or anything that came up for you, you, you could somehow just be okay with it. You weren't shaken by it. There was no parts of yourself you had to run from. There was no parts of yourself that you had to hide. Like, would you be interested in that superpower? And of course, it sounds really nice to be able to uh, fully be be open to all of our experiences. So the default is that we tend to um, favor certain experiences over others, we tend to prefer um, pleasurable, pleasant, positive emotions over negative emotions. And so, and our culture feeds right into this. We live in a culture of comfort where it's all about, you know, feeling good, feeling happy, feeling comfortable. And when we get too invested in that pursuit of living comfortably and not feeling anxious or not feeling sad or not feeling shame, we're, we're, we're typically disconnected from activities that are really vital. You know, like for example, parenting is a great example all of all of the research shows that parents are, are pretty st- reliably less happy and less satisfied with their lives. And so, but you, would you ask parents? You know, would you be willing to trade in your kids for a little bit more happiness? Most parents would say no. Be, why? Because it's because there's nothing. Most of the time. <laughs> Most of the time. <laughs> Some days, yes, <laughs> uh, and, and it, because it's meaningful. Because it's it's something that is is important and vital. And and so, acceptance is a process that uh, helps us give up the struggle with our own internal experience so that we can open up to uh, what we'll talk about in a moment are living our lives in a more values-based way.
0: Yeah. The word I want to sort of um, pick up on there is struggle. Cause I think that's the, you know, the, the central core feature of non-acceptance is struggle um, internal struggle, struggle against our own experience, struggle against what is, and struggle is exhausting, you know, struggle is exhausting. It is mentally absolutely exhausting. And struggle is the heart of anxiety, depression, you name it. It's a struggle. It's a struggle against one's own experience. I, I, I want this. I don't want that. I need to, to think through how I can make this problem go away so I don't have to deal with it anymore, especially problems that are sort of uh, relatively insolvable. Just struggle with the feeling. Struggle, 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 struggle. When we start from a place of acceptance, you know, we're essentially letting go of that struggle, which typically frees us up to actually interact with whatever circumstances in our lives are troublesome in a much more flexible way. You know, but that's—it's the struggle that is exhausting. It drains our resources and it keeps us from seeing the situation. Clearly, you know we see the aspects of the situation that we don't want or are afraid of, or the outcomes that we're nervous about. Um, instead of being able to put down that struggle, you know, take a deep breath, see the situation extremely clearly, you know, and choose our actions with again much more calmness and clarity. So this, the the sense of struggle to me is 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 a core is sort of the core experiential aspect of this process um, struggle versus letting go, which is in psychedelic medicine, the idea of letting go is absolutely central to the experience. So we talked about selfless context as being sort of like the transformative experience. I think that in practice, one of the most important pieces and one of the only pieces of guidance, I think with with going into a psychedelic experience is one of surrender and letting go to whatever the experience is. Bad trips, bad experiences happen when we, when we resist, when we struggle, when we fight, you know, when you are um, having really strange experiences and hallucinations that are disturbing, you know, and you internally tense and struggle with them and, and, and they will deepen and darken very often. However, when we let go and, and again that let go is let go of the struggle, let go of the fight um, and allow that experience to just sort of wash over it, wash over us, it will almost invariably transform. It will transform into something else. It doesn't mean we won't have that negative experience still, but it will change. you know it will change and it will move. And experience always changes and moves that's in the psychedelic experience, but that's also in life experience changes and moves. But when we struggle, we essentially lock that into place. We can't move through, we can't move, you know, and we become tied to this incredibly exhausting, incredibly draining, incredibly energetically painful experience of, of, of fight, of struggle, of strife. You know, so psychedelics you know that that phrase just let go let go let go let go is is one uh in which you use over and over and over again it's almost like a mantra sometimes just just let go go into it let it be let go
1: and surrender into it yeah the, the psychedelics are are fantastic tools for teaching us how to let go and a lot of us are really prefer to be in control You know, I'm one of those people who loves to be in control of everything. And so there is a great lesson in that uh, there are there is a value in letting go of control. And uh, that's an experience. Again, these are we can talk about these as ideas. But really, the the meat and potatoes of the, the, the benefits of what we're talking about is having this experience of acceptance. So related to acceptance is another process that we call diffusion, uh, which is kind of more focused on our thoughts. So the idea of fusion is when we just take our thoughts, literally each one as truth, as uh, equally weighted. We just kind of Go along with what our minds are showing us, and in reality, we have thousands of thoughts each day. Um, there was one study that estimated we have between sixty and seventy thousand thoughts a day, and so that's a lot of thoughts. And in that huge, huge number, you know, there's thoughts that are pretty neutral or or just random. There's some thoughts that are more helpful, and there's some thoughts that are less helpful. And when we work with clients around this process, we're teaching them to be, have a different relationship to their own mind, So it's not about getting rid of a thought or changing the way you think, but it's changing your relationships to your thoughts so that when a thought shows up, you can choose whether or not you want to react to it or you want to believe it or you want to let it call the shots in that particular moment. So can we learn to take our thoughts less seriously, just seeing them for what they are, our busy minds kind of constantly evaluating and planning and remembering. And, you know, these are not bad things. There's nothing pathological about this, but it's the rigidity of attaching um, with great significance to every thought that comes up that can lead to a lot of suffering. Yes, absolutely. You know, and to to kind of harken back to
0: sort of our our root metaphor that we're using here of, of the map. You know, the in a, in a way that the language words are are sort of the ink of the map. You know, it's like what that's generally made of is this network of of thoughts that we have. For example, you might maybe go into a social situation, put your foot in your mouth, and feel really embarrassed, and just kind of have the thought like, ah. Oh, mm. I am such an asshole. I'm such an asshole. Right. And like, so there's there's that, that thought and that fusion with that thought, you know, like that, that, that thought is there now we could try to focus on say like, Oh no, you're not an asshole. You just made a mistake. That's not true. You know? And that's when we're, when we're working with the content of a thought, we're actually trying to change what the thought is. We're trying to change what thoughts. Now, the problem with that is that our thoughts are not voluntary and they happen fast and they are well-trained by years and years or decades of experience, right? And so, you know, you, you, know, you might reliably have a thought in a certain situation and trying to focus on not having that thought in that situation I mean I think sometimes that works if it's not a very well trained thought and there the you know it's not like you can't ever change that but it can really just be a rabbit hole that you dive down that doesn't really do any good because that thought is going to come up right you've had it a million times and telling yourself not to have it actually in many ways serves to reinforce it because you're still obsessing about that thought and I don't want to have that thought so we might not want to change the thought, like, oh, I'm such an asshole, but we might want to hold it differently. You know, we might want to work on noticing that, like, okay, well, that's the experience that my mind evokes when I feel uncomfortable. This is uh something that happens in my mind when I feel when I feel embarrassed. Noticing that the thought is not necessarily the literal meaning of the words, but merely an experience that I am likely to happen in a certain situation. Uh, we can see the thoughts from different angles. You know, we can just play with, we can, we can play with language here. You know, language does mean things, but it isn't inherently the same thing as what it refers to an easy example is just a tree. If I say the word tree, everyone out there has an image of a tree. If I could even, I could even say Oak tree, you know, I can say Oak tree in the fall with red leaves. Right. And everybody might even use those words to construct an image. Um, And that image is going to be really vastly different from the image I have with using those words. And I could even be thinking of a very specific tree, you know, like an Oak tree with red leaves in my backyard right now. And the image in my mind is going to be different than the oak tree that's out there right now. There's a copy error that happens all the time when we use when we use words it's the The words refer to things in the world, but they're not the same thing as the thing in the world. You know The word is also uh, simply a symbol you know uh, and when we see our languaging as just the use of symbols and it's the way that our mind is behaving in a moment symbolically. We're sort of trying to distance ourselves from the content of what it is. I'm an asshole to noticing like the symbolic way in which our mind responds to a situation. This is not the typical way we relate to thinking at all, which is why it takes training. You know, it takes training to learn to look at our thoughts differently. And again, this is one of those things that's done in an instant with psychedelic medicine. Uh, One of the common experiences, another one of the common experiences is words just lose their meaning words become just weird, kind of hilarious often, and nonsensical. It's hard to describe, but the experience of language under the influence of psychedelics just simply, fundamentally, fundamentally changes.
1: Yeah, and that in ACT, the, you know, the role of language is central to suffering. For some folks, it can be hard for them to step back from their maps and really see that they live more in a world of ideas than than the actual world around them. Uh, Psychedelics, you know, another way that they can be helpful is in giving us kind of new or creative ways of thinking. Like we might have thoughts that we've never had before in a psychedelic state of mind. Uh, We know that, uh, you know, there's this thing called the default mode network, which is probably some sort of uh, circuit in our brains that does a lot of helpful things like gives us a sense of self and um, helps us organize our, 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 lives and our, our reality. Um, but they can become rigid and stuck. And uh, when we, we can't see past them, we can't see past our ideas. We, we don't even know how our ideas are shaping our reality. It's kind of like the, the fish swimming in water doesn't know that there's water until it flops out of the water one day. And we don't realize that we're swimming in a sea of language constantly. And, you know, we oftentimes, for example, we're more interacting when we're talking with someone, we're more interacting with our idea of the person than the actual person. And as Nate just mentioned, all of language is inherently reductive it reduces this rich experience of that red oak tree to, oh yeah, red oak tree. Like I know that, like that's just a word and, and it takes away from, from that. And so when we're in our minds and in our thoughts, we're more susceptible to um, the biases that any particular thought pattern might be um, creating. And it's not easy to be able to step outside of that and really see it for what it is. Yeah,
0: and I, I think an act of some of the techniques you use to kind of deliteralize, or to take, to take our language and view it not only as the content of what it says it is, but just as those symbols, as a, as a symbolic process, and and you know, doing things, I think that can be really effective, but almost seem silly. Like when you imagine the words, uh, that are going through your head, like I'm such an asshole again, uh, on a marquee of a billboard or in different letters, um, with polka dot, like in different colors with polka dots or things like that they seem almost silly, but it's a matter of trying to create a little bit of distance from it and see it as uh, a process of behaving as opposed to just like a literal truth about the world. And, you know, some of those processes, I think, really are, are common with what can happen with language and psychedelics, which is really language can become ridiculous to the point of absurdity when you just see how how it is a behavior more so than just a literal truth of the world and how far away language can be from that which it refers to.
1: Nate, I have to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we can pick up and record the last. Yeah, we two could later. just. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna stop this. Yeah, yeah. So we can just splice in the, the last two at a later time.